So centuries um, before Jesus uh, was born, the, um, the ancient Hebrew prophet Isaiah declared, Emmanuel, God with us, will come. And in his name, the nations will put their hope. Uh, at the same time, the prophet Micah predicted the, uh, the Savior's birthplace. He said, Bethlehem, out of you will come one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. I watch and hope for the Lord. I wait for God, my Savior. Uh, over the past few weeks, we've been talking a lot about hope. And um, we noted how a growing number of people, especially those in Western culture, uh, no longer believe the future will be better than the past, uh, a belief that uh, sociologists refer to as optimism bias. It's on the decline. And I've been thinking about that a lot recently, and I, I'm wondering to myself, you know, are we in the church perceptibly different? I mean, are we viewed by the culture around us, as, by the people around us, as men and women of hope, of true hope? Do our words speak of a future with better things to come? Do our actions demonstrate we really believe it? And because we believe it, are we becoming less about accumulation and more about generosity, less about consumerism and more about compassion? Together, are we committed to offering those in despair the opportunity to, um, to hear, to see, to experience, and to know the hope that we found in Jesus? Emmanuel, God with us, God incarnate. In the New Testament, in his biography uh, of Jesus, the Apostle John writes this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. As many of you know, uh, incarnation is a word theologians use to describe uh, what the ancient prophets um, placed their hope and expectation in. And what the Apostle John says about Jesus um, it comes from the Latin term incarnare, meaning in the flesh. John says, in the beginning Jesus was with God, he was God, through him all things were made. And John says, he became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Translation, in Jesus, the God who was invisible became visible. Deity took on flesh and blood to come be with us. Emmanuel. Now, as Christmas approaches, uh, a lot of people are going to overlook that. But as Christians, we light candles to symbolize it, sing songs to celebrate it, exchange gifts to reflect it, and do pretty much whatever we can to acknowledge the reality. But ultimately, what does God's incarnation mean to us on a daily basis? I mean, if, if you believe it, what's the implication for you? And how is hope connected to it? I mean, remember, hope, we said... Uh, biblical hope refers to a strong and confident expectation of something good to come, that something good is going to happen. And as Christians, if our hope is based on the incarnation, what does that mean in practical terms every day? And I think that it means a number of things. Uh, I think first it means that we affirm the truth of Jesus, not just, you know, not just his historical legitimacy. I mean, no one no one refutes the fact that Jesus was a real man who walked the earth, who lived, who died, and was good and smart enough to have an unparalleled impact on history. And most everyone who celebrates Christmas uh, believes that. But the incarnation demands more from us. To affirm that deity has come in the flesh and lived among us means we, 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 we accept and embrace everything, uh, everything Jesus was about. 
I mean, does it make any sense to you that God would go so far as to take on human form and enter human history to, to deceive us, to uh, you know, lead us astray as if pulling off some kind of divinely uh, elaborate practical joke? No. It seems only logical that if and when we believe in the incarnation that we will fully accept everything about Jesus, we'll accept all of his claims as God's as God's truth. I mean, keep in mind, Jesus didn't merely imply divinity by way of his miracles, which were impressive, or by his willingness to forgive sin, which is the prerogative of God alone. Jesus claimed to be God, which is why the religious experts wanted to kill him. Um, and if we believe the incarnation was and is true, then we will believe not just some, but all of Jesus' claims, all of his teaching, will obey his teaching because it's the teaching of God himself, you see? The most basic tenet of which, by the way, is God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. I.e., Jesus came for us, he came to be with us, and provide human beings a living, breathing example of divine love. John says, to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent or of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. See, to hope in the incarnation means we affirm not only the truth of Jesus, but Jesus himself as God, our Savior, who said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Hope in the incarnation means we embrace divine mystery. You know, how does, the, how does the invisible become visible? How does uh, the eternal invade the temporal? How, how can deity mingle with humanity? How can God wrap himself with flesh and blood? I have no idea. I don't know. I can't explain it. No one can. Which means, as Christians, we have to accept and live with, with that which defies intuition, a paradox uh, we can't fully comprehend or explain. It's fascinating to me how we live in a culture today uh, that has grown increasingly skeptical and cynical of organized religion and yet remains exceptionally spiritual. Uh, the majority of Americans believe in God, well over 90%. Nine out of ten high school seniors say they believe in God. And so as a culture, collectively, you know, we have this innate sense that something big, something big exists outside of ourselves, something beyond what we can see, hear, touch, taste, and smell. And so there's an unrelenting search for the transcendent, for something independent of the material universe. And, and you know, people are naive. People aren't, people aren't dumb. Most people realize that if God does, in fact, exist, how could, we, how could we possibly understand everything about him? How can the finite comprehend the infinite? And sometimes I think that as Christians, we lose people in conversation, when we try to present God in a neatly packed, easy-to-understand systematic theology, inferring that uh, we've got him all figured out. Uh, and don't get me wrong, I'm not suggesting theology is bad. Neither am I saying God hasn't revealed enough about himself through, through nature, through Scripture, through Jesus that we can't know him. I'm just saying that, you know, at some point or another, we have to admit, when it comes to God, a tension exists between Revealed truth and incomprehensive mystery. There are things about God, who he is, what he does, why he does it, when he does it, how he does it, 
things about him that, that extend beyond our ability to grasp. And I, I realize that makes some of us in the church really anxious, but um, we need to be okay with that. We need to be okay with our limitations because you know what? God's okay with it. There's a guy in the Old Testament, his name was Job, uh, whose, whose life was much like ours with its ups and downs, its successes and failures, the good, the bad, the ugly, and the you know, joy. But Job also went through an awful lot of suffering. And in the midst of that, uh, one day he began to you know, question God and just wrestle with this idea of who is God and why is he doing what he's doing and, and why is he allowing what, what, what's happening and all these things. And He's crying out to God with these questions, and, and God responds to Job, and he says to Job, Job, no offense, but you, you don't and you can't know everything about me. You just can't. And so he challenged Job. He said, he said, Job, where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Who marked off its dimensions? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? Who shut up the sea when it burst forth, when I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness, when I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place and said, this far you may come, but no farther. Here's where your proud waves halt. In other words, God says, where were you when I created the oceans and, and the beaches and the tidal currents? God, God went on. He said, Job, have you ever given orders to the morning? Have you comprehended the vast expanses of the earth? Tell me if you have. He said, who cuts a channel for the torrents of rain and a path for the thunderstorm to satisfy a desolate wasteland and make it sprout with grass? Job, do you know the laws of the heavens? Can you raise your voice to the clouds and send thunder, uh, lightning bolts on their way? Did they report to you saying, here we are? And God goes on and on for a while asking Job these questions. And finally, Job, he just kind of crumbles and he says, okay, I get it. He says, God, I know you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. Surely, surely I spoke of things I do not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. Here's my Ray K summary. With great humility, Job admits to his creator, he says, you're God and I'm not. And I can't possibly comprehend everything about you, what you do, how you do it, why you do it, when you do it. Job says, I simply trust you. And the text says that the Lord accepted Job's prayer. So you see, in a universe um, designed by a sovereign creator who has a plan for our world and for us, there are things we can know and explain, and there are things we just can't. Science, uh, technology, human reason can answer a lot of questions about life and existence, but it cannot explain everything. So we live on a mysterious edge, a point where the natural is intersected by the supernatural. And as Christians, you know, as people of faith, we should be the first, we should be the first, first to ad admit that because, because at the center of our theology, at the basis of our hope, sits this idea of incarnation. I mean, I understand some religions, some religions teach that God is so imminent that uh, incarnation is normal. It's a normal thing. For example, uh, Buddhism and Hinduism see the divine in everything. On the flip side of that, you have Judaism and Islam that say, no, God is so transcendent, incarnation is impossible. And then you have Christianity, which is unique. Because it doesn't say incarnation is normal, it doesn't say it's impossible. Christianity says God is so imminent, anything is possible. 
and so transcendent that his arriving in the flesh is going to be a paradigm-shifting, life-transforming, history-altering, hope-inspiring event. And because of that, our hope in the incarnation means that we engage with the concept of mission, which is really what Christmas is about. Right? I mean, the incarnation isn't just about a child in a manger. It is about God plunging himself into human history, a miraculous event um, predicted more than 700 years before it happened by Isaiah the prophet who said, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, God with us. In other words, the, the birth of Jesus was part of an eternal plan whereby, whereby God himself would come in the flesh to love, to heal, to serve, to forgive, and ultimately rescue rebellious, wounded, sinful, broken people like me. And what's really interesting is how uh, this divine mission um, began on a local level. It started in a little town, right? started in this little town and then slowly uh, expanded. Over the past two years, uh, as a church, we've been involved in a ministry initiative, a generosity initiative we've called All In. And over that time, we've talked a lot about what God is doing globally. We've talked about what he's doing in places like India and Asia and, and, and you know, South America and the Middle East, which is important to talk about because the good news of God's love is for everybody. You know, it's not limited by race, politics, or international boundaries, which is why I go to places uh, far away. Those of you who know me uh, know that uh, uh, I don't like to travel. I grew up in North Jersey, just outside New York, and for us growing up, nothing really existed uh, west of Philly, east of Manhattan. You know, uh, our world is very contained. You know, we didn't really believe in anything else out there, but there actually is a big world out there. And uh, I don't like to travel in it that much. I really don't like to fly. Everyone says, well, what's the matter with flying? It's not the flying, it's the falling. It just makes me nervous, but... But I, 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 over the last two years, I've forced myself out of the comfort zone, out of my comfort zone, uh, and I've traveled to places like India. And that is not a Photoshop, by the way. On the left, that is actually me in a school uh, with, uh, with children from in, in, in India. And I've gone to places like the Middle East and, and, and met with people there and you know, witnessed what God is doing. And, and I go there to remind myself and to come back and remind you that God is at work way beyond, you know, our little western Chicago suburban bubble. God's at work in places like this. As Jesus put it, you know, for God's a love of the world that he sent his son. So clearly the incarnation carried a global purpose. But it started on a local level with Jesus dwelling among, as the Apostle John puts it, or hanging out with, as I would state it, with family, with friends, with neighbors, with his local community, the, the very people he came to rescue. You see, deities in the fleshness had a very practical, everyday aspect to it. You know, Jesus was all about establishing relationships with, with average people. The thought of which just troubled and angered, you know, the, the religious experts who criticized them constantly for it. You know, Jesus' response to the criticism was, hey, you know, John the Baptist isolated himself out in the wilderness and didn't, you know, didn't engage with anyone. He came neither eating bread or drinking wine. You said he had a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. You say, here's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of sinners. Basically, Jesus says, there's no winning with you religious people. 
Here's the point. Dwelling among people, hanging out with lost, broken, marginalized, messed up men and women is what Jesus came to do. It's what he did every single day. In fact, if you read through the, entire, the entirety of John's biography of Jesus, you'll see how it's true. Go ahead, read through it. You'll see how in Jesus, God went to weddings, mingling with people, entering into family life. He performed his first miracle at a wedding in Cana. Uh, it was, uh, he turned water into wine. And uh, it was the best wine everyone had tasted that day. And he gave it to the bridegroom's family so they could continue uh, the celebration. And you'll, if you read through it, you'll find that Jesus, you know, in Jesus, God went to the workplace, to Jewish fishing boats and Roman tax booths. God went to temple where he participated in the spiritual practices of his people. God went to wells, local watering holes. You know, it was like the equivalent of the first century Starbucks. It's where people would go to get a drink and, and where they would socialize and they would hang out and they would talk and they would share news and information and all these things. God went to feasts where he... He shared in community life. God went to pools, public baths where people would go for ceremonial washings and prayer for healing. God went to the marketplace where everyone was scurrying around, busy buying and selling goods, trying to make a buck. God went to picnics, and at one he fed several thousand people with some bread and sardines. God went on boat trips. He went to funerals. He went to small villages and big cities where he broke down racial and socioeconomic barriers. He went to dinner parties, sometimes parties thrown by his friends, sometimes those thrown by strangers, at other times those thrown by his critics, his enemies. God went to court where he was brought up on false charges. God went to Golgotha, the place of the skull, the place of crucifixion, where in innocence Jesus gave his life as a ransom for many. And from there God went to the tomb. And three days later was resurrected and returned into the cemetery, and then showed up in a room in Jerusalem, and then on the, sea, the shore of the Sea of Galilee. All of this is recorded uh, in John's writing, all of it, from start to finish, as a way to validate what he says in the opening statement, that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We've seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, i.e., God walked with us. We heard His voice. We shook His hand. He listened to us. He fed us, he served us, he healed us, he sacrificed himself for us. Through the incarnation, Emmanuel lived out his mission embodying divine love and offering forgiveness to those who would receive it. I mean, understand, Jesus didn't just lecture the good news at people. He lived it. He lived it. He came into the world to engage depravity, serve and rescue sinful people. The incarnation is all about mission. And get this, the last thing Jesus did on earth was transfer that mission to uh, uh, that mission of engagement and service and rescue to his followers, to the church, to us. Following the resurrection, when he, he, he showed up in that locked room in Jerusalem where John and Matthew and Peter were all hiding, all of them were hiding, they had no idea what to do next, he shows up and he says to them, he says, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. That's incarnational missional language. He says, I don't, I don't want you guys cloistering yourselves away in, in the, within the walls of this room. I want you to go out and into the world. I want you to live and love and serve and give and sacrifice yourselves for others. In other words, be like me. Dwell among, you know, average, everyday people. Incarnate yourselves in their lives. What does that mean? What does that look like? I can look a number of different ways. 
Maybe it means you spend time in other people's homes. You invite them into yours. It means you're, you be a regular at, at River City Roasters or, 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 or Corner Coffee or Blackberry Market or someplace like that. Uh, you know, the local connecting place and meet a lot of people. It means you participate in, in community life and events, celebrate with those who rejoice in the good things of life, and mourn with those who are suffering. It means give to those in need. It means tend to the sick. It means stand against injustice. It means love the marginalized, hang out with the outcast, feed the hungry, love your enemies, listen to people's stories, share your own story. I mean, what are you doing? How are you giving? Where are you going? Jesus said, through your love, through your service, through your generosity, Go and point people to me. He said, go and make disciples, incarnational missional language. He said, go into the world, incarnational language. This past year, we've spent a lot of time studying the book of Acts, a history of the early church. And uh, in the very beginning, if you remember, Jesus said what? He said to his followers, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, then Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Which is a fascinating statement, because not only is it incarnational, but it, it follows the ministry model of Jesus. You know, God's mission that now we're part of is to live out this good news locally and then expand outward. And it isn't an option. I mean, as God's people, it's our identity. You know, we, we are people of mission. But here's the rub. Jesus didn't dictate a programming schedule. Why not? Well, I think it's because programs have a beginning and end, don't they? I mean, programs have limited commitments, Limited time, limited energy, limited resources. But as far as I can tell, Jesus never talked about programs. He talked about mindset. He talked about attitude. He talked about lifestyle. In other words, participating in God's mission to the world happens, it happens in our homes, at our jobs, in our schools, in our neighborhoods, on football fields, on volleyball courts, in pubs and coffee shops, just, just average places. Some of it some of it happens on Sunday too, sure, but it's not limited to just two hours a week on a weekend. You know, as, we, as Josh mentioned earlier on the, on the last Sunday of the month, December 27th, we're not holding any services here. And we, it's just like we did last year. We're calling it Family Worship and Serve Sunday. And we're encouraging everyone to, to get together outside of these walls as family, as friends, as life groups or whatever, and, and, and pray and worship and, 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 and then go out and do something unexpected and lovingly sacrificial for somebody else. Surprise them with that. Go and actually be Jesus to someone on the Sunday after Christmas. That is your spiritual act of worship for the day. And doing things like this periodically helps shatter the notion that the church is all about two hours on a Sunday, two, maybe three times a month. I understand, 2,000 years ago, through the incarnation, men, women, students, children were given the opportunity to be touched by transcendence. And it's that touch that changed their lives, their community, their culture, and the world. And I fear what has happened um, uh, for us in our culture is that the touch of transcendence has been lost because as the church, we have stopped engaging. Out of fear, out of, I don't know why, but we've stopped engaging, and it's tragic because it's through our engagement, it's through our incarnational living that people experience God's love and transcendence. 
But to a great extent, we've retreated, we've isolated, or at least distanced ourselves from the people God cares about, whose lives he wants to touch. We've become way more about criticizing than caring. But I'm convinced God is calling us to greater incarnational engagement, which is exactly what Jesus said to his followers, right? He said, he said as the Father sent me, I am sending you. Get out there. Live for me. Love for me. And so our belief and our hope in the incarnation means that we, we affirm the truth of Jesus. We embrace the mystery. We engage in mission. And ultimately it means we rest in God's grace. Right? Think about what John says. He says, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of what? Full of grace and truth. Translation. Through the incarnation, deity came to do for us what we could, not, we could never do for ourselves. And therefore, our hope in the future is not, is not in our own human efforts, our own our own moral goodness, our own pious works, but in God's grace alone. Christianity is not about proving ourselves or trying to earn our way into heaven. It's simply about receiving the grace of God. That's what makes the good news so incredibly good. As the Apostle Paul summarized it, for the grace of God has appeared, grace that offers salvation to all people. And grace changes us when we experience it. It changes how we think. It changes how we live. Uh, Eric Metaxas is a New York Times best-selling author. He's written a bunch of books. Uh, he's a great author, a uh, very funny guy. I got a chance a couple uh, years ago to spend a weekend in a small retreat with him. Very funny guy, very bright. Uh, and he's a, in fact, he just, uh, I just saw an article by him, I think it was yesterday or day before, in the Wall Street Journal, um, so he's very respected. You know, when he was in college, he went to Yale. Uh, he considered himself an atheist. But while in Yale, began to question that atheism. And soon after graduating, he, he came to faith and is now a very outspoken follower of Jesus, sort of an intellectual, if you will. And uh, last month, in an article titled The Crisis of Despair, Metaxas wrote about a number of recent medical, sociological, and economic studies uh, that indicate there is a growing sense of hopelessness within our culture. And in light of that despair, and with Christmas just a couple of weeks away, Metaxas says this. He says, The power of Christianity in this cultural moment is found in Jesus. For in Jesus, we see that death and despair do not have the last word. Through him, we see the unredeemed from all walks of life who suffer from all manner of wounds and sins fashioned into a loving family that calls its, calls its sons and daughters beloved. Our opportunity today is to more fully become that which God calls us to be, the church, the body of Christ on earth, who continues to heal the lame, give sight to the blind, and set free those souls held captive to despair. Those trapped in despair aren't looking for an end to things so much as a home where they are known and loved. The antidote to despair is hope. People will not find hope in a culture that loudly proclaims how meaningless everything is, but they can find hope in Jesus and in the community of loving believers. Share that hope this Christmas. Share that invitation with someone. You never know how much they may need it. And Metaxas is right. And so this Advent season, 
as followers of Jesus, may our belief in the incarnation, you know, in the truth and the mystery and the mission and the grace of God, the truth of Jesus, bring such joy and inspiration to our lives that the thrill of our hope will overflow out and into our weary world, inviting and leading people to Jesus. Emmanuel, God with us. Let's pray. Our Father, I, 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 uh, I don't think it's hard for any of us to see how in the midst of, of our world today and all of the confusion and the conflict and the injustice, all of it, how people are losing this optimism bias, this, this belief that the future will be better than the present or the past. People are losing hope. And maybe some of us in the room have lost it. Or maybe some of us are just scurrying around to try to find it, to manufacture it through, I don't know, through relationships, through money, through possessions, uh, through our own good works and efforts. I, I don't know, but some of us are scrambling to find that hope. And, but the only true hope comes from you, our God, the one who created us, created us for a relationship, and until that is restored, um, our optimism bias is going to be in decline. And so I pray for each of us this morning that in the, in the, in the craziness of the season and the chaos that has become Christmas, that we would find that moment, perhaps even now, where we can, we can ask you to restore our hope. We pray your, your spirit would come and fill us and thrill us with the hope of Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus, who came and did for us what we could never do for ourselves and offers us life and forgiveness and extends to us grace. And all we need to do is receive it. And as we do, it changes us. It does. And so I, I pray, Lord, that in this moment, um, your spirit would have free reign in your people. Speak to us. Move among us. Inspire us. Thrill us with hope. All in the name of Emmanuel. We pray this in his name. Amen. I want to thank you for uh, joining us this morning, and um, I hope you can come back uh, on, on Thursday and on Christmas Eve. You know, the, the ancient prophets waited a long time for Emmanuel to come, and uh, we only have a few days to celebrate it. So hopefully you can come back. We have a lot of services to choose from, and here's my commitment to you. I will do my best to boil down the truth of the gospel in such a simple way that no matter who shows up, uh, they will now understand the message of Christmas. And, uh, and you know what? Maybe you've been a Christian a long time. You know what? We all need to be reminded of the simplicity of it. Yeah? That it's about the grace of God. It's not about your good works. And so come back on Christmas Eve. It's, one, it's my favorite uh, service of the year. It's a candlelight service. It's, it's just beautiful. So we look forward to having you here. Um, but I, look, it's not lost on me. Um, 
this year that sometimes the holidays can be really hard. You know, I always knew that in my mind, but this year, you know, my family has, has experienced some loss, and I realized, whoa, that's it, hard. It's hard when the holidays come. If you've lost a parent or a spouse or a friend, a child, whatever, or you've just gone through some difficulties or whatever it is, sometimes the holidays can be really hard, and maybe you're struggling right now as Christmas approaches. Some of our prayer team folks will be down front. They're willing to talk with you and pray with you. Um, but the thing is, as, as followers of Jesus, no matter how things go, one way or the other, good or bad or ugly, we don't lose hope in the future that's promised to us, right? So um, thanks for being here, and uh, I look forward to seeing you on Christmas Eve. Let, let me pray for us, and then we're dismissed. And now, Lord, as we go our way, as we anticipate um, the celebration of Christmas, even as we come again together on Christmas Eve, to remind one another the simplicity of the good news and to celebrate the arrival of Jesus. Uh, I pray now that your hand of, of grace and protection would rest on your people till we, till we join together again. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for being here. We'll see you Thursday, Christmas Eve.